Welcome to Breaking Doctrine, presented to you by the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate at the Combined Arms Center at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. The views expressed here are those of the individual and do not represent the views of the Combined Arms Center, U.S. Army, or U.S. Government. Welcome to Breaking Doctrine, a U.S. Army Combined Arms Center podcast series that dials in on some of the basic tenets, principles, and overall ideas in Army doctrine. Hello, I'm Major Rich Deagle, and today's discussion topic is Army Techniques Publication ATP 7-100.3, Chinese Tactics, produced by the TRADOC G2 team. Our guests today are Mr. Rich Creed, Director of the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate, Ms. Angela Williams, Branch Chief for Doctrine and Production, TRADOC G2 ACE, and Mr. Brad Marble, Doctrine Author with TRADOC G2. Mr. Creed, Angela, Brad, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Rich. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Today, we're discussing the recent publication of ATP 7-100.3 Chinese Tactics, which was released in early August. This pub is part of a larger effort by the Army intelligence community, spearheaded by the TRADOC G2 ACE, to support the renewed focus on near-peer competition, large-scale ground combat operations, and multi-domain operations. This doctrine series will present how adversary forces think and act at the tactical and operational levels. ATP 7-100.3 specifically draws on characteristics of Chinese culture, history, philosophy, national policy, and understanding of the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP, recent expedited military modernization, People's People's Liberation Army, or PLA doctrine, and capabilities development. Through these multiple lines of effort, 7-100.3 characterizes how the People's Liberation Army Army, PLAA, the ground component of the PLA will likely be employed to defend China's core interests, spanning from domestic stability and security to regional hegemony in the near term, and militarily support greater global ambitions in the not-so-distant future. Opening the panel today, our first discussion topic is how the publication was conceived. Historically, the Training Circular's 7-100 series associated with threat doctrine have been more focused on nonspecific actors, We'll open with Mr. Creed. Uh, why the change from your point of view? Um, Rich, that's a good question. And so there's a, there were a whole bunch of factors that kind of came together simultaneously that, that made us say, hey, wouldn't it be a good idea if? And, and that was acknowledging that we knew the training circulars were out there and that people had access to them. Uh, the first was the uh, publication of FM30 in uh, October 2017, where we named names in the introduction about, uh, you could call it the two plus three or, or the big four plus one um, that were named in the NDSS, the National Defense uh, Strategy. Um, and so we, we mentioned the Russians, the Chinese, the North Koreans, and the Iranians by name. And there was some apprehension at the time that that would cause uh, kind of a ruckus. And, and, and it really didn't since the testif- testimony in front of Congress um, and the House Armed Services Committee, the Senate Armed Services Committee, by senior Army leadership and senior Army civilians, recognized that they were our real-world adversaries. So that turned out to be not a big deal. Um, and so when we deliberately made the decision to, to make our doctrine threat-focused as opposed to just talk about what we can do, but in other words, put it in the context relative to an adversary, we started having some discussions internal to CAD with the, the CAC commander at the time, the Combined Arms Center Commander, General Lundy, uh, and then the leadership in TRADOC G2, Mr. Greco and Mr. Cleves, um, and uh, who was, boy, I'm embarrassed because he's going to listen to this and I forgot his, uh, Gary uh, Phillips, Mr. Phillips, good grief. And so um, we talked about that and we said, hey, you know, we were all of an age, uh, of the right age, we were Cold War uh, uh, warriors in our formative years. And uh, we used to have a, a book on the Soviet Union, actually three books, a three-volume series, the 7100 series. Um, the first two editions of which most combat arms and, and combat support, you know, that's how we organized ourselves at the time, officers were expected to be pretty knowledgeable about what the Soviet threat was, how they fought. We had to memorize large aspects of, of their capabilities, particularly uh, artillery and, and weapon systems, ranges and so forth. Um, and we said, so, you know, maybe if we're going to focus on large-scale combat operations, again, as our focal point for it is, perhaps we should have some understanding about how 
the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians, and the North Koreans fight, right? And so we call it tactics, or but it's more than just tactics because we, we really want to kind of give people a, a contextual view of that. So it took a little while for that kind of to take hold and, and to get buy-in among everybody because it's a lot of work to write a book. Right, and, 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 and the Trade G team, team is as busy as everybody else, but they're the ones uniquely suited in the Army to, to do that. So I think that was the biggest um, aspect of it. The other piece was um, it was an acknowledgement, explicit, and, and kind of a counter to people that said, well, the Army just wants to go back to fighting big wars, um, and so they're just dusting off airland battle and all those kinds of things, where as if you use the approach that we did, that there's four discrete threats with unique cultures and military histories and, and approaches and contexts in which the operations that they, they might conduct against us. Um, it shows that we recognize that we live in a multipolar world and that we need to account for all of that. And then lastly, I would uh, open up the idea that maybe it's a sign of a little bit of humility on our part, that we don't know anything, that it's important for us to understand the different threats. Um, and in some way, you might view it as a view of respect for those adversaries that we find what they do or could do worthy of study. Uh, thank you, Mr. Creed. And then just kind of uh, basically sort of taking that football over to uh, Angela and Brad. Uh, it's been quite a while since the last publication of anything in the uh, Training Circular 7-100 series. I think tw 2011 was the last uh, uh, pub. Um, Basically, how did that kind of come down, and what were the driving factors specific to you for undertaking such an ambitious project, you know, writing a full-on book of uh, Chinese tactics? Right. So um, you're correct in that the, the TC7100 series hasn't been updated in quite some time. I would be hesitant to say that it's outdated because I do believe, and, and we do believe, that the content is enduring. However, they are composite models. So what, we, um, what was somewhat the impetus for, for writing these four ATPs was the fact that um, users were struggling to pull out what they needed for each individual actor. When you have a composite, even though that composite is based primarily on, on Russia mostly, followed by, of course, China, Iran, and North Korea, um, they are somewhat mixed together. Um, and at the tactical level, that maybe doesn't matter so much. But as Mr. Creed said, you want that context, you want the culture and the understanding of the doctrine. So it was really to meet customer needs. Um, while we do want to look at updating the TC7100 series, this was more pressing at the time. Well, I think the other thing, Angela, too, is, um, you know, you had the decisive action training environment. I'm not sure the audience all knows what that is, but it's essentially this menu of ingredients, and you can pick and choose, you know, best in breed or best in class, different capabilities to build an op for, right? But if you don't have a, a structure or a model for that, then how do you know what's best to do? And the other thing I think that relates to what U.S. Forces Command is trying to do is improve the quality of home station training. You know, what to, can units at the company or battalion level do to build their own op for to train at home station? I mean, that enables you to, to actually, hey, here's the recipe for who you might be fighting should deterrence fail while you're in a rotation of Korea, for example. Absolutely, and, and so that's a really good point. You know, when we first developed DATE, also, gosh, 12 years ago now, um, I was on the team that did that, and at the time it was, it was very um, limited compared to what it is now, and um, we only had DATE caucuses. It, it fit very well with the Op4 doctrine, um, and the concept there was you can do anything with this that you need to do, but now we really are helping people um, to really do that with an informed decision with the ATPs. We've expanded date. We call it date world now. Um, it's multiple, uh, or I don't even know how many um, times bigger it is than it was to start with. But now if you do want to, have, if you have a commander um, who needs informed decision on how to fight Russia, you can do that because you can use the Russia ATP when it's developed. Um, same with China, North Korea, Iran as well. So the expansion of Date World and uh, the publication and production of these ATPs is going hand in hand. And there's really uh, you know, nothing better to inform you on threat actors right now than these seminal documents. So we are proud to be a part of it for sure. I, uh, I, I think one of the most interesting things for me throughout this entire process, it, it relates to something you just said, Mr. Creed. Uh, the, Russian or the Red Army casts a really long shadow over U.S. understanding of threats, and that is 
it's probably not as true today as it was 20 years ago, but it's still pretty pretty true. It's one of those things that people are just real comfortable with what they know and what they've experienced. And the my biggest takeaway is there is a serious understanding throughout the DOD and with the Army in particular that the PLA was just sort of Red Army East. And <laughs> it is not at all. It's they have, in my opinion, a lot more similarities with Western armies, the U.S. Army, than they do with the Russians in a lot of ways. So um, breaking that mindset, I think, is of a lot of value, especially as China becomes an increasingly uh, important consideration in our national defense strategies and so on. Now, that being said, the other thing that I think is really interesting about uh, the way this all developed is there's a, a major dearth of knowledge throughout the force on specific threat actors. And that is something that I have encountered constantly through this entire process that it, people are so into this topic because they don't know anything and they want to. And the Army, the DOD in general, has kind of let them down with regard to producing quality products that can they can read and they can learn from and so on. So recreate one of the, the points that I make in my LPDs is something that alludes to something that you just said, Mr. Creed, which is we want to recreate that uh, that body of knowledge that the Army once had for the Red Army in, in our current regionally aligned mindset. So we will have the Russia ATP informing folks about Russia that are, are concerned with that side of the world and the China ATP is working towards the same ends and the other side of the world. And, and building that institutional knowledge, I think, is really, um, it's the way to go and we have a long way to go to get there. And um, it, just rebuilding that, that body of knowledge that we once had about a specific threat, it's a huge task. And, and it's, pretty, it's been great to be on the ground floor watching the, the force kind of adapt to that. Well, we're, we're your biggest cheerleaders in that regard in, in some ways. I, so a mentor of mine, Major General, retired Bill Hicks, you probably, some of you have probably heard of him. He used to be the Dame OSS. But he uh, had visited China uh, in that capacity back when we were still doing those kinds of exchanges. And he talked about um, how the Chinese military, but the Army in particular, was learning how to learn and uh, doing combat training center rotations. Um, and they had a voracious appetite uh, for best practices as opposed to, as you said, mimicking their old big brother, which they really haven't been their big brother for uh, almost 50 years, right? And so, uh, you know, taking somebody's equipment isn't the same as trying to say that you're going to fight the same way. And then so I've taken the good advice of Mr. Greco, Tom Greco, the trade IG2, and, and Gary Phelps when, uh, the, the, when he was running the show out here. Um, he said, hey, you need to go read Active Defense, you know, that paper that, that was written a few years back on Chinese military strategy. And so I, I took that to heart and, and started reading it, and, and I found a lot more parallels, as you said, with how we kind of go through that operational concept idea. And again, adjusted for party ideology and, and the unique constraints that the Chinese nation had at the time over history. but. That's what I took away from that as I'm going is exactly what you said, that, you know, we should not make assumptions about anything in terms of things that we don't know very much about. I'll add that one of my key takeaways as a former uh, Indo-PACOM intelligence officer is not only just the amount of information that was contained in this particular publication, but the fact that you were able to keep it all at the unclassified level. Especially for our junior analysts, that's going to be a sort of a key factor going forward is just having this... Um, publication to kind of go back and refer to to ensure that a lot of our assessments are correct. So my next question for Brad would be, um, specific to the intel perspective, we are uh, very, very um, strongly correlated to proper sourcing to ensure that like our, you know, our assessments are, you know, accurate, accurate and based on fact. Um, what were some of your sources for developing this publication? And can, can you kind of give us some background into your research? Yeah, it uh, the the PLA is surprisingly um, cooperative with with how they how they write and publish. They're the same way as we are in a lot of respects, and that's one of the things that I thought was pretty interesting. We view the 
Chinese Communist Party as being pretty secret squirrel and 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 very cagey and so on. But the PLA doesn't necessarily reflect that same kind of mentality. And they published their doctrine on open source channels the same way that we do. And so that's all available. They're very long and very, uh, I think the the correct term is transliteration. They're not really translated, but they're, they're, uh, Directly, they, you know, word for word. So it's their bottom line is they're very difficult to read. It's basically Chinese and English, and so it. I think it was unrealistic to expect junior Intel analysts to crack into those and get something useful out of it. So that was really the um, the biggest driver for um, for at least what I was using as my my end state was taking that information and creating something that was readable for uh, for junior enlisted junior officer folks um so as far as sources goes the the pla has a bunch of different publication houses and it's all it seems like sometimes they have competing publications in some respects which is a little weird but it's very different from how we do things here we have just one uh uh one cad to rule them all here as opposed to a, a bunch of different um different they they call them academies or, or um, but anyway that uh, so the the publications that I use that like I said they're all unclassified they're all open source and there are a handful that are of most importance and the, the biggest one is called the science of campaigns and that's something that I think anyone who has looked at China over the last 10 or 15 years is at least familiar with. And if you actually tried to read it, you know how completely impenetrable it is as a, a, a sit down and read kind of thing. Um, but the other two books that I, I used or doctrinal pubs that I used that were um, of that I, I leaned on the most. The, the first was. Uh, their operational concept they call uh, war and conditions of informationization and that is the rough equivalent to our MDO or in historically something like airland battle or, or full spectrum operations or whatever and that was actually a pretty readable a very useful thing it was, it was clearly written by military professionals and it, they had a very clear um, general direction in mind which if that's great like that that makes it really easy to understand what they're thinking and and how how they envision force development and the the big takeaway there is it doesn't just talk about tactics it talks about capability development also so it's kind of a it's prescribing to the chinese equivalent of the military industrial complex what we need from you what what we need in terms of systems and and how we need to train our people how we need to modify recruiting and all of that stuff and the last one was it's an older manual but it was a, a infantry manual from roughly 2004 and that one I, I leaned on the least just because of the the relative age and it wasn't nearly as long but what was best about that is it was written for the junior maneuver officer and so it was a really uh a focused look at what they want to try to do in maneuver combat as opposed to there's just a litany of things out there about a2 ad and the chinese grand strategy in the western pacific and all that stuff but there isn't all that much that's written about what the chinese infantry squad wants to do and so this was a it, number one that stuff doesn't tend to change very much over long periods of time i imagine all of that stuff is still practiced now for the most part and number two it's um, it, it's not covered by all of these other, there's just so many analysts out there who talk big China strategy and all of that stuff, but there is next to no one who talks about the, the low level tactical stuff. So it was really valuable in that respect. So anyway, those, those three books were the big, uh, the big official manuals that I use. And, and the, the problem, of course, that I've alluded to already is they're getting a little bit long in the tooth, which is something both we and the Chinese are aware of. So the way I, I um, tried to mitigate that problem was just using open source reports, which 
like their doctrine, I was kind of surprised the PLA is very enthusiastic about writing that stuff. White papers. Yeah, yeah, well, not just that, but a tactical um, tactical ARs from their CTCs and and uh, and news reports and and stuff like you know the same stuff that the U.S. Army does. They they do all of that, and it's all available on open source. And a lot of it's in Chinese, so we have uh, you know people translating it. That that that's I don't speak any Chinese, so it, you know that was a necessary step in there. But um, anyway, what I did is set up just an open source uh, search and data scraper that that pumped my inbox full of every day's uh, open source reports coming out of China that centered on certain keywords so when i'm writing a certain chapter it's certain it's searching for certain keywords and i get what's happening in china today or this week or whatever based on what i'm actually writing at the time so it keeps everything relatively up to date well and that's like one of the sort of the key points that we'll talk about in a later segment of this podcast is information operations by clearly demonstrating how they've grown as a force over the past decade or two um, and then publishing that or publicizing that to a world and global audience is basically showing them continuing to be a rising power both militarily and then throughout the other aspects of done yeah I, that's a great point and you have to bear in mind all this stuff is filtered through the great chinese information washing machine so it's it it is not necessarily to be taken as um as 100 percent you know there's there's elements of propaganda there but on the on the other hand the pla likes talking about what they're doing they like they are very fond of talking about their profession at our of arms and in the same way that we are so um there's a level of authenticity there you can kind of tell when a uh, a piece is heavily influenced by the party and when the police or when a piece is written by um by a military guy who just wants to talk about what he's doing that day I think that idea of a robust professional military discourse is, is really kind of amazing, and I think that's what a lot of folks just don't get. There aren't that many armies in the world, at least in my experience, dealing with you know 30 or 40 in this job on a fairly routine basis, that can point to a, a robust level of, of professional discourse that's available for public consumption. And so, you know, many times people ask us, well, how come you don't classify your doctrine? You know, some of our allies, all their doctrine is at least what we used to call confidential, right? That level of, hey, everybody can't just go look at this. And we've always thought that, one, that's a barrier to access, which means everybody, you know, anything that you do to make um, entry into the discussion more difficult or, or learning more difficult lessens that. But there's also that... Um, I don't know if the right word is deterrent effect, but there's certain amount of benefit for everybody to know what you're thinking about and what you're doing because it sends a message, right, that you're serious about what you're doing, that you're learning, that you're getting better, um, and that your army is flexible, right, or your armed forces are flexible. And I just wonder sometimes if that transparency isn't, isn't deliberate. It's not an accident. It's, it's, you know, probably for the same purposes that we are. Calculated. Yeah, I mean, you, you make a, a calculation about risk-benefit, and I think the benefits outweigh any risks of, of transparency. So uh, for my next uh, question for the panel, um, specifically because I know that it went out to uh, both the intelligence community and various uh, units just kind of for their uh, internal views dealing or um, in regards to experience, like their experience with the lo different levels of the China uh, focus, what challenges did you uh, encounter integrating with other intelligence agencies and assessments into your research? And how were you able to keep things and maintain things at the unclassified level? And I'll pass that to Angela first. Sure. I, well, I think one of the biggest challenges is, is like with anything, when you're writing a publication this large and you're asking for other folks to read it and weigh in early, that takes a tremendous amount of time. Um, so they have to be really invested and see the value in that for taking their time. Um, there's times, of course, when people are direct, directed to do so, but at the early stages when you're analyst-to-analyst -analyst collaboration, um, it can be a challenge. It can be a challenge to find the right person. It can be a challenge to get them to want to participate and be able to take that time. So that, that's always a challenge, but um, very well worth it. I mean, you can't write this publication just Brad Marvel sitting at his desk, as brilliant as he is. Um, so you have to have that. So it, it just takes a lot of time. So that's a bit of a challenge there. But 
Keeping it um, at the unclassified level is also very important for lots of reasons. Um, you know, the main one being just the joint interoperability um, and, and multinational partners are so invested in this as well. You kind of go back to DATE again. Um, DATE now has so much investment from our ABCANS partners that that's a critical part of the whole thing. And if these publications, these ATPs were then written in a classified manner, that really interferes with the process. So. Um, I would say we've definitely had some challenges. There are lots of folks who still believe if something's not classified, it's not good enough. Um, and that's simply not true. Um, you know, as we've said, we publish our, the U.S. Army publishes our information. It's out there. It's valid. It's not invalid because it's unclassified. And that's the same case, especially with the Chinese, as Brad has been describing. So there's plenty of valid, um, worthwhile information at the unclassified level, and I think that we've shown this here. Like I said, there were challenges, um, sometimes at the analyst level, but more at the senior le leader level of, well, wanting to protect the information, wanting, um, for instance, to not let the Chinese know that we know what they know, <laughs> but they already know that we know. So um, it's kind of that risk-benefit analysis, as Mr. Creed said. So We keep, overthink things. We do sometimes, exactly, yeah. exactly. So fortunately, we were able to get past that with lots of um, reviews and buy-in from our, our uh, collaborators. So really an important part of the whole thing. Yeah, uh, the, I had a lot of help with this, like, like Angela alluded to. I had uh, both government and non-government people who were, they weren't just helping because they were asked to or because they were ordered to. They were helping because they were really enthusiastic about the product, and that makes a huge difference. And, and I, when I started this, it was, man, two year, two and a half years ago. Um, and China, even at that point, wasn't as big a deal as it is now. And so I, when I was creating my my group of experts, I'm reaching out to these various places around the government and out of the government, and these people have been doing nothing but China their entire careers, and not necessarily a lot of spotlight on that for the most part you know for most of their careers we were in doing the war on terror thing and china was sort of a, a secondary concern and then all of a sudden it seems like at least to me china gets vaulted to the forefront of our our collective conscience and these folks all become a whole lot more important as far as the um at least as far as their influence goes and so that was that was neat to see um and the the other uh, another individual i'd like to call out his name's uh dennis blasco and he's a he's a retired uh lieutenant colonel um and he was an fao a china fao during his army days and since he retired he's been um spending his time as the open source china guy he's written several books and he he um contributes fantastic articles all over the internet and so on and he's he is an encyclopedia of china it, everything pla and he was a fantastic collaborator and what he really turned me on to is how much there is out there open source because he'd been doing that for a long time and he was able to clearly he pointed me in that direction like there's so much out there that the U.S. government is just not making use of, and here it is, so make use of it. Now, that was tremendously helpful, not to mention his, his reviews of my products and tearing tearing everything apart and telling me everything that was wrong and so on was, we ended up with a much better product because of his involvement. You know, our, our view from the challenges was one, we were the ones that kind of established the requirements, so we needed to be clear, and it took a while to iterate exactly what we were looking for in terms of you know, given something for Brad to write against that um, could be supported by the institutions and all the other people that would do it and not cause people to have heart attacks about classification and all the rest, right? Um, and then um, establish consensus in that regard. And really, once we got everybody in the intelligence enterprise to accept that we were going to do this thing, just stay out of the way. <laughs> uh, and then do whatever we could to help build consensus that this was a good idea and so forth. So, you know, somebody asked if the G2 or the Army asked what our thoughts were on, you know, how this thing should come out, then we would tell her that this is what we want to do, ma'am. And, and, you know, we're not trying to cross any lines here. We're trying to pr pr provide something to the force of some utility. So once the requirement went out there, we just stayed out of the way as best we could. 
I, the uh, uh, building on that, the one of the interesting processes with this thing was, I'd, I'd call it scrubbing or um, scraping. Uh, yeah, doing the comparison between high side and unclassified, and and making sure that everything. It, number one, most important, everything in the unclassified document actually is unclassified. Um, and then number two, making sure that everything in the unclassified document doesn't contradict or, or um, you know, uh, say something that is not concurred with by the IC on, on higher classification levels. And it, we got we had a, lot of, a lot of help with that from a lot of different um, people with a lot of serious equity in that stuff so it was that was a, a challenging process um but you want to do without dumbing it down so much that you end up with something that's not yeah you know. it, yeah and that doing the, there were some spirited arguments with, with what what belonged in there it's something angela alluded to earlier it, like do we really care if the chinese know that we have read their doctrine i i, I didn't other people did not agree with that uh, position so that um, you know I, I don't have any role in policy or decision making or anything like that so watching that those discussions was pretty interesting um, but it, the bottom line is we have a we have a document now that is fully aligned with the IC positions on on everything that you you see in there so um, if you're on if particularly for Intel type folks um, you can use it with confidence and it, you it, confidence that it, it aligns with the IC in, in all respects. And if you need additional information on stuff, it's always available to you at higher classification level. Right. And I'll just add there, to be fair, the, the folks, especially our senior leaders who were challenging um, the classification level of this document, making sure it is unclassified, and um, being concerned about whether or not this is information we do want to share that we know, that that's completely valid and an integral part of the process. So, so while um, you know that that makes us work harder, that's that's critical. So that's absolutely okay. And then ultimately to have that senior level buy-in is also critical. So so all of that was an important part of the process, and it's always good to keep us on our toes as well. Um, but the the other thing I'd say too about the classification. Um, yeah, it's true that that uh, to keep it unclassified, you do have to leave some detail out, obviously. But that level of detail, we've always found, whether it's in this ATP or other products that we do, is usually not critical to understanding the concept. Right. So um, that's, again, why uh, we feel like our unclassified products really, really serve an important purpose, because it gets at the same ideas without some details that, that are classified, uh, but it's still teaching our soldiers what they need to know. Yeah, and I would throw another thing out there that... And I'm just guessing. I wasn't around when it happened. But I would suspect that prior to that Soviet Army 7-100, there were probably documents out there in the 70s or 60s and 70s that people say, hey, we're not going to put this into a book because, you know, we don't want to give away what we know, right? But it was that long-term exposure over a number of decades about dealing with the same adversary and preparing um, for conflict should deterrence fail against that adversary that over time made the institution more comfortable with talking about it in more detail. And we're nowhere near that same level of focus and exposure over time that we were in the late 1980s, right, when we published those yeah. things. And so people become more comfortable over time, I think, institutionally when they realize, hey, listen, you know, we, we don't necessarily have to play uh, as many angles on this particular issue when, you know, at their combat training centers, the op four is us, right? So if that's the case, then we should probably not be so reluctant to acknowledge that, you know, you're going to be our op four too on occasion. So, so kind of shifting more into like the uh, organization and content of the pub itself, uh, two, two really distinctive parts. Part one, uh, PLA Forces analyzes the Chinese Communist Party and their strategic goals, uh, provides some classic line and block charts f uh, for the PLAA, outlines component forces and joint capabilities, 
and introduces an evolving Chinese doctrinal concept uh, now known as tactical systems warfare. And finally, it discusses tactical information operations or I.O. Uh, second part, PLA actions, really dives into the tactics portion of the doctrine, uh, which interestingly enough somewhat mirrors uh, U.S. doctrine in certain cases. Specifically, the section tackles recon and security, offense, defense, and stability, while adding a little section on anti-terrorism. Uh, Brad, can you share some insights on why uh, the, the content of the pub was kind of organized this way? Yeah, it uh, it was really kind of an iterative process. I, I um, my initial task was to take the TC seven one hundred series and adapt them for. Uh, to be more Chinese focused and I started doing that and, and figured out um, pretty early on that that was not going to produce a, a, the best document possible so kind of went back and, and reassessed the way I was organizing everything and the way um, we were presenting all that information and came up with the the, the way it turned out the, the structure that we ended up using and so the reason I broke it down like that was, it, I, and I think this was vindicated um, during staffing, is the vast majority of the audience is most interested in that first section. And I would guess probably 90% of the comments I got back during staffing were on that, were on the first section, and then probably 75% of those comments were on only the first chapter. And that's just because that's where people people's interest lies for the most part. You know that that's it, kind of a natural thing, I suppose. And um, so putting that stuff up front, trying to give the strategic and tactical constructs that they use, and um, and in particular putting that in the the point of the document where when you open it, it's going to be the first thing that you read, and kind of sets the stage for. Um, for the rest of the material, I, I think that was a coherent way of doing it. And um, I also think probably resulted in a lot of people reading just the first chapter and then kind of skimming the rest of it. Um, so, you know, that's, if that's how you want to use it, you know, that's fine by us. Um, but the, the second half, that's, that's what I wrote for the, the Brigade uh, S2 or you know uh, an ace guy who's trying to replicate the threat in uh in an actual training environment and all of that material is there for those folks to get in there and you know move the the icons around and and understand the doctrinal principles and all of that stuff that hopefully will let them replicate something like china in a real training scenario and it's um it, the specific way we broke it down was influenced by the TC series um, and it, it makes sense it, I didn't see a whole lot of reason to change that it's uh, it roughly aligned with what the Chinese how the Chinese view their operations which it, that makes sense their their view of operations is influenced in a lot of ways by the US so um, yeah it, it made sense to do it that way uh, I am currently writing the equivalence document for Iran and they they do not view it the same way so the way that's developed is very different and so the structure there is is somewhat different and um, I, it's been great to have buy-in from my leadership they they pretty much say whatever you think makes sense go ahead and do that we don't need to stick to a, a real prescription so um, yeah coming up with the the best possible solution to describe this stuff has been um, it's been a challenge but it uh, I think we came up with something that's useful Absolutely. Uh, like one of the sort of key correlations going back to your point is China watching our success on live television of the Gulf War, and that's really kind of where they started this evolution. But then tying back in Mao Zedong and Sun Tzu and a lot of their classical Chinese sort of elements of warfare, uh, you know, just kind of especially kind of right up front in that first, in, like you said, the first chapter was uh, really set the stage for the success of this uh, pub. Yeah, it's that's one of those things um, that I, I've loved learning about is that that uh, the PLA kind of going to school on on all of the world's militaries, not just the U.S. And they've adopted best practices from all over the place. Um, 
but they've also tried real hard to maintain that that uh, uniquely Chinese perspective on stuff, and they they take a great deal of pride in their history of philosophy and the history of the the PLA and what they've done in the past, and that's all reflected in their doctrine. So it's not as much as they're influenced by the world's militaries and taking best practices. They also try very hard to um, to maintain a, a grounding in their own culture and their own society and so on that I think comes through in their doctrine. Yeah, I mean, I, again, going back to reading that act of defense, and I'm the least subject matter expert of the folks on the panel here in this view, but looking at it, their history since 1949 from someone who's focused on doctrine, you see some themes that run through that. Um, they kind of belie some of our common wisdom or mythology based on our experiences fighting the Chinese army in, in Korea, right? So you talk about human waves, it's always human waves. And, uh, or what was the other one uh, we call human waves is the broad one, but you also talked about how many uh, hordes are in a Chinese platoon. My father was in Korea in the late 50s and that was always a joke in the US Army. Doctrinally speaking, how many hordes are in a Chinese platoon? Um, when in actuality, when you read any of the other non-China-specific histories of that war, you really realize that they were fighting the way that they had to fight based on the army that they had and the conditions of, you know, we had utter air and naval supremacy. And so they weren't using human ways so much as they were using the equivalent of World War I German swarm tactics where you would fix and then work your way around flanks and, and you would operate at night, much the same way we talk about operating in periods of limited visibility when you're fighting a peer threat, right? Um, you look for opportunities um, when the enemy's attacking to draw them in and then attack, counterattack the most vulnerable aspects of that advancing formations, which cost us whole battalion task forces in North Korea in 1950, right? That wasn't, um, the behavior of a primitive military culture that was the, the, the calculated tactics of a very advanced military culture that was fighting only one year after they won their own civil war, right? So um, that's something that kind of came to mind. Um, and then this idea of uh, their movement towards joint operations, right? They were army-centric for a long time because they had to be. Um, and it was always about the defense of Chinese proper. Now, we will argue about what constitutes China, right? And that's really the source of friction between China and their neighbors. But um, that, that idea of evolving towards joint, being a joint force is extremely expensive. So you have to have an economy that can pay for ships and modern aircraft, missiles, and so forth. And so I think it's a kind of a natural evolution of fundamental thinking that's been around for a long time. It's just that now that they have the resources to, to pursue the kinds of outcomes that rich nations have been able to do for 30 or 40 years. Yeah, I, I love your point about the uh, the Chinese tactics in Korea. Um, it can't, it, the reason I think it came to the West as human wave tactics is that's what it seemed like to the guys who were being attacked. Like this is a, right. a there's a whole lot of Chinese soldiers that show up out of nowhere and and the so all right. I can take that perspective. You know, that's probably exactly what it seemed like. But what was very sophisticated about that is how the Chinese soldiers were able to move obscene distances on foot, carrying their gear at night. In it, like no other military on earth was able to do what the Chinese did. And so it seems like they're coming out of nowhere. But act the operational level stuff that went into getting them to that position and and developing the the doctrine that supports that was that a lot of smart people did a lot of thinking about that and and came up with a useful solution a solution that worked for them at the time and it that same sort of approach it they've they've adopted the same um that same intellectual rigor with their modern doctrine and the, they still refer to people's war as that's still the Bible in a lot of ways and it's just evolved. They haven't ever repudiated the ideas of people's war. They've just let them evolve to a, a, account for modern systems and and global distances and so on. So it, that's one of the, the things I think that I, I really try to um, 
to emphasize for my audiences is uh, this this is not an unsophisticated opponent. They they put just as much thought into this as we do and have come up with solutions that they think will work for them the same way way we have. So and they've demonstrated it in real world. Now granted it's been a long, long time since they've demonstrated it in a in a real environment, but um, the processes are still pretty much the same. Well and I you know you know, you watch the old uh, movie uh, with Gregory Peck, Pork Chop Hill. And you, you look at that movie, which is a pretty well done movie, uh, and you're saying, you know, the American defensive positions are all dug in and they got overhead cover and all that stuff. And a lot of people f- probably don't realize that the last time the U.S. Army fought an opponent that had significant field artillery capability that could bring massed fires down on your position uh, in conventional fight was the Chinese Army in Korea, right? And so there's a history there right a sophistication there and so how did they do that when they had no air power over top of them right that that should drive you towards thinking that that they were a formidable opponent and not anything else other than that because when you adjusted for modern conditions with much greater capabilities and the ability to contest you in the air with a modern air force and a modern uh, integrated air defense systems uh, a modern large naval fleet um, and then even more probably intimidating, or it should be, is a space force that can watch and, and observe. Um, that should cause people to, to take them seriously for no other reason, that combination of factors. Yeah, I, I think also one of the general global military trends that, that we recognize is it's the battlefield is real lethal now, much more so than has ever been and it's harder and harder to hide and harder it's easier to target things and and i think that's reflected in our doctrine that we're we have conceded we no longer can just park out in the open and and you know we have complete freedom of action in the in rear areas and so on we assume we're always under surveillance and everything is targetable and so on and so maybe a little ironic we could learn something from the chinese approach with regard to operating under a a constant umbrella of enemy surveillance and the the specter of long-range air artillery attack and so on that they they have never abandoned that as a, a central principle and the their the basic ideas of infiltration and and movement and uh limited visibility conditions and so on that's something i think we can take a look at and uh we need to take, I mean, if we don't take a look at that, we're making a huge mistake. One of the things I do when I talk to audiences about what's new with multi-domain operations and this focus on large-scale combat against peer threats, and China is absolutely would be considered a peer threat, every bit as much as a Russia ever was, um, should you have to fight them, of course. And we're not saying that we're going to be fighting anybody. We're just saying that, you know, you have to prepare for the worst-case scenarios. But... The U.S. Army culturally has got to get out of the idea uh, and start to understand that other folks can do to us what we have assumed we could do to others with impunity since the end of the Cold War. So anything that we can do to anybody else with the capabilities we bring to bear in a fight, a Russia or a China, uh, but particularly China, can do the same things. And that drives you towards, or should drive you towards, a cultural shift about your approach to operations. And definitely kind of looking at that, sir. Uh, so 2015 kind of considered the watershed year of the most recent uh, emphasis on PLA uh, modernization, specifically kind of looking at the ground force going backwards from the way or going back in time to the waves of waves of Chinese attacks during Korea. Uh, did some significant personnel cuts specifically to the People's Liberation Army. So downsizing and restructuring of their forces to kind of make them a little bit more modular, scalable and capable. Uh, for what operations that they can see themselves uh, conducting in the future. So similar to kind of when the US, Ar- uh, U.S. Army adopted the modular construct with the implementation of brigade combat teams, Brad, can you highlight some of the key changes to uh, the PLAA4 structure uh, that are included and in, you talked about in uh, 7-100.3? Yeah, the, the, biggest, uh, the biggest change, I think, from a... a strategic or policy level perspective the the PLA for most of its history was enormous not just numerically but their 
role um, socially, culturally, economically in China in a, in a way that, you know, the U.S. military has a huge role in American culture, but it was nothing compared to the PLA. It was, they were, it's a, the political army. It's a, you know, the armed wing of the Communist Party and so on. Um, so the change going away from that, the, the revolutionary army to a professional army was huge and it took a long, long time and it's still ongoing in a lot of ways. And the biggest muscle movement there was breaking up, uh, breaking up the big army, breaking up the this huge entity that had massive uh, political influence and and um, was just it was so deeply ingrained in the way China operated. They had to they had to break that up, and in order to do so, that that was uh, it's still kind of ongoing. The party kind of had to go to war with the army in a lot of ways, and. And the, you see quite regular, pretty regularly now, um, generals getting uh, dismissed, arrested, corruption, whatever for corruption. corruption. Yeah, it's a it's a an ongoing challenge, and that so that's been going on for quite a while. But really, the reason they had to do that it was it was a fundamental reallocation of their national defense priorities, and that they had to make the army smaller in order to fund the in, the in massive naval buildup that has been going on for the last 15 years or so and to modernize the air force and to to build the strategic support force and so on so we really changed from a giant army with an air force and navy sort of loosely attached to it to an actual legitimate joint force with the same sorts of joint equities that we have that they they are different services they have uh different uh representation in their their system and so on the joint forces like how they kind of transition to like the 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 individual theater commands vice military regions similar like correlation to our um our gcc's um, yeah yeah a a theater command it's i it's uh, functionally the same thing as a COCOM. So it's a it's a joint headquarters and they have their subordinate joint commanders from each service and so on. Um, it, you know, the, the change from just the Army doing everything and telling the Air Force and Navy what it needed to happen, you, you can imagine how the, the, the comparison I like to use is um, a lot of this audience, I would imagine, has been through a BRAC kind of realignment deal and how politically charged that is in America and how how fiercely people fight for their equities and what China went through is 10 times worse than any BRAC cycle and they they seem to have come through um, with a a modern understanding of a joint military Um, so yeah then getting out at the tactical level the uh, I think it's they looked at the world's militaries and the u.s in particular and came up with the, the combined arms brigade is in most respects pretty similar to the bct it has, there's some um differences in structure and so on but the I, the basic idea is pretty similar um they have taken what we we envisioned a more modular force i think than what we we ended up with when we first went to the bct construct the Chinese are going all in with the modular stuff. And they, they have a bunch of different names for this stuff, like uh, synthetic formations is a, one example. Um, but everything's a task force. Everything is task organized. Everything is uh, built for a specific mission and so on. And they, they've taken this, this basic idea all the way from the theater down to, to the battalion level. And they are all in with it. They're building the the C2 backbone to support it. They're building the the sort of modularity into their their doctrine and their systems that would support it and so on. So they are they're going deep with it and deeper than we we were comfortable going. So I think it'll be very interesting to watch how that actually plays out because um, anyone who lived through that uh, era can attest to how difficult it is to to do the lego block approach to building a military unit and you know that they're they're going all in with it stay tuned for part two of our discussion on chinese tactics finally the views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official position of the united states army the u.s army training and doctrine command or the combined arms center i'm major rich deagle and this has been breaking doctrine